Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly update on the big issues in defence and foreign affairs. This week, Afghan cities on the brink of collapse as the Taliban's offensive intensifies. This is what strategic political failure looks like. The complete inability to properly identify the aims of the campaign. Britain under pressure to do more for former interpreters fearing fatal retribution. We work honestly, bravely with British forces. The Taliban are waiting for their revenge. I'm yelling uh, for help from the British government to help me. Iran's told it's made a big mistake attacking a tanker, but what will the West do? Plus, who's faking the position of Western warships and why? This falsification could be used to uh, justify some sort of uh, military action based on false information. It's a month since Western forces completed the bulk of their withdrawal of remaining foreign troops from Afghanistan. The Taliban has wasted no time in taking advantage. In Kandahar and Herat, the militants are battling for control. And in Lashkagar, capital of Helmand province, Afghan forces have urged civilians to flee. General Sami Sadat is leading the battle against the Taliban there, warning of devastating consequences for global security if they fail. But he insists that won't happen. I believe that we will be able to hold our ground and defeat the Taliban with Afghan Air Force and the Afghan ground forces. However, it's not going to be nice. It's a very intense battle. People are being replaced. You know, people are forced to leave their houses by Taliban and then their houses are turned into the fighting positions. They dig in murder holes. They take families as hostages and use them as shelter. So they do horrible things. But I believe that our military strategy will work and ultimately the Taliban will be defeated and thrown out of the greater Lashkargah area. Journalist Lynn O'Donnell is in Afghanistan covering the conflict. I spoke to her a little earlier. The situation is dire. Um, I think a lot of the media attention has been on Helman because of the British military um, involvement in there. The uh, special forces of the Afghan army have been in there for the last couple of days. They've been going door to door in what we could only call urban warfare, really, because the Taliban, as they have in both Kandahar and Herat as well, have been embedding themselves, if you like, in residential homes. And what this means is that it's very, very difficult for the military and for the citizen militias that are fighting alongside them to um, to make any massive assaults that would extract or destroy or get rid of the Taliban out of those areas. I'm in Herat in the west. Uh, this province borders Iran. It has 19 districts, 17 of which are under Taliban control. That's pretty much the same situation with Helmand and Kandahar as well. The Taliban have uh, control of an awful lot of the um, of the territory in all three provinces. There have been US airstrikes in support of the Afghan military. How much of a difference is that making? Air support is really the only edge that the uh, Afghan military has in their fight with the Taliban. Both uh, US military and Afghan Air Force airstrikes are, are really what's probably going to make the difference. It's certainly been so in the past in other places where the Taliban have had 
control of huge swathes of territory. Where I am in Herat, the um, Afghan Air Force has been uh, bombarding Taliban positions on the edge of Herat city uh, for the last couple of days. We know that the airstrikes have been um, uh, taking place around Lashkagar city in Helmand province also for the last couple of days. Kandahar the same. Really air support is what is making and going to make the difference. Civilians have been urged to get out of Lashkagar by the Afghan military. What is the mood among ordinary Afghans? Well, they're terrified. Um, uh, you've got uh, 200,000 people in Lashkagar who've been pretty much under siege for the last uh, few months, and that's intensified in the last uh, week or so. Uh, the question is, where do they go? It's all very well for Afghan army generals to say, get out so that we can get the Taliban out. But where do they go? Um, here in Herat, people aren't being told to leave or leave their homes or leave the city, but they are being told to stay indoors. Yesterday afternoon, shops were forced to close. Most cities, 31 of the 34 cities in Afghanistan, are now um, subject to nighttime curfews. That's 10pm to 6pm. As you can imagine, the resources in Kabul are coming under uh, severe strain because people are going into the capital from all points of the country if they can. So yes, people are, are getting out when they can, but en masse, Almost a quarter of them residents in Lashkagar. Where do they go? Lynn O'Donnell in Afghanistan. Lord Richards was chief of the defence staff for much of the time British forces were in Helmand province. What does he make of events in Lashkagar? To see it at risk of falling is a huge wrench. While uh, I would never have agreed with what we are now doing, President Biden took this decision, uh, and I'm very critical that NATO countries, including our own, seem to rather meekly have gone along with that decision, with no explanation, by the way, of why we felt we had to. And I'm pressing government to give us an explanation, because I think we're owed that, and the people of Afghanistan are owed that. Are we so in hock to the Americans that we have to do this? But actually, what I want now is to know what the strategy is to prevent Afghanistan from falling to the Taliban. We have heard nothing about that. And that is what now most of our political and military energy should be being expended on. And we need to find out and understand it better. Yes, because your energy, you spent years not just fighting the Taliban, but training and supporting Afghan forces who are on the verge of defeat after just a few weeks on their own. This was entirely predictable. They needed Western support support still. They were slowly getting there and they aren't doing that badly. Some of them are excellent, by the way, but not all of them, not sufficient numbers. And that is why we should have maintained the effort we had to pull the plug on it prematurely at the very moment when they most needed us. Beggars belief uh, and that is what has happened. They weren't yet at the standard required to manage by themselves and they needed us and we are leaving them. That pulling the plug, as you put it, Afghanistan's president says the trigger for this crisis was the final drawdown of uh, from Afghanistan of international forces. Do you agree that with that? I do. I mean, I don't know, we're going back to my previous point, what plans have been put in place to substitute for that previous strategy. What we now need to know is what are they going to do to prevent it? I do know the American military is putting in a huge amount of equipment. Um, someone told me it's you know, three, three and a half billion dollars. But how is that going to be used? And how are the Afghans going to continue to be assisted 
uh, at what we call the main effort where they most need it. I don't know about that. And that is why we are all the British armed forces, the population of this country who were behind us for all those years, deserve to know what the plan is now. But most importantly, this is for our own security. Ungoverned space is opening up in Afghanistan. There's been no uh, terrorist or other form of attack for 20 years. Uh, let's keep it that way. And the only way you can be certain of it is to make sure that you properly help the Afghans in the way we successfully were. Two former defence ministers, Tobias Elwood and Johnny Mercer, have called on British forces to return to the front line in Afghanistan to stop the Taliban taking over. Is that realistic? It's a big challenge. I, I've spoken to Tobias Elwood about it. You know, it's a sorry state of affairs that we're in. But for Britain... Uh, who not that long ago would have certainly have been able to do such a thing, to do so today is going to be difficult. The army is much smaller in number than it was when we went into Afghanistan. And I think it would be difficult. I've advised them, you know, to just think it through very carefully before they put that idea forward. That said, I endorse it because NATO as a whole could well do something together as an alliance. And my belief is that that, if we are going to return in any way, that is the vehicle by which we should do it. It shouldn't be British-only action. Can you understand why those who served in Afghanistan or the relatives of those who died would look at this now and wonder whether there was any point to the sacrifices that were made over the last two decades? And do you share that feeling? Well, uh, I do understand it. And obviously, I served there myself uh, and share much of that. But to reassure them, you know, they one, they did a terrific job at the tactical level. They were never defeated uh, by the Taliban. I mean, it was a close call on occasion, but the Taliban have great respect, respect for the British armed forces, and rightly so. They might not like us, but they certainly respect us. You know, there hasn't been a single terrorist attack from Afghanistan for 20 years. Um, amazing things have been achieved in Afghanistan. Now, that still can be preserved if we act in some way now to do so. And that's why I'm focusing on it. Um, if that doesn't happen and the Afghan government fall and the Taliban succeed in what they're trying to do, then I think what you've asked me uh, will be a legitimate question. And, and our political leaders will jolly well have to explain exactly why they failed and what they intend to do about it in the future. Lord Richard's talking to me earlier. Well, before this latest Taliban advance, Afghans already accounted for one of the world's largest refugee populations, around three million. But some of those most at risk of Taliban retribution remain in the country, asking the UK to save them. They're the interpreters who worked for British forces. Some have been brought to the UK, but others have been turned down for resettlement, either because of the way they left their jobs or because of a minor misdemeanour. For some, like this former interpreter for British forces, options are running out. Many of my uh, colleagues, uh, they are also in danger, uh, especially the Sen interpreter, because we were the people we worked honestly, bravely with British forces against Taliban, but the Taliban are waiting for their revenge. If I travel to Pakistan or other countries, uh, there is also no safe place for me because uh, there are the uh, hotbed of the insurgents or, or the Taliban's. So they will find me and they will kill me. I have lost my way, what to do? I, have, I don't have a plan. The only plan I have is I'm yelling uh, for help from the British government, from the British forces 
to help me. This week, the Defence Secretary has promised to personally review the cases of interpreters turned down for resettlement in the UK. Ben Wallace now says those Afghans working for contractors or dismissed for minor offences will be eligible. Dan Jarvis was a major in the Parachute Regiment and served in Afghanistan. He's now a Labour MP and the Mayor of South Yorkshire. I think it's a step in the right direction, but clearly there is a real urgency about this. The situation in Lashkar and right across Helmand Province and further afield across Afghanistan is deteriorating rapidly. There are hundreds of Afghans who we served alongside who are now in mortal peril. And therefore we need the Secretary of State and the Ministry of Defence to move at pace and process those cases as quickly as they possibly can. Should it have taken until the Taliban were inside Lashkar to move on this? No, it shouldn't. These are matters that should have been resolved many, many months ago. And it is a source of great concern that people who step forward to support our mission in Afghanistan are now incredibly fearful for their safety and the safety of their families. I know from the correspondence I've received that there are hundreds of Afghans who work for British forces in different capacities who are in mortal danger. And therefore, the Secretary of State and the Department needs to move very quickly to make sure that those cases are processed and that support is is offered. I think that we have an absolute moral responsibility to support those people who we worked alongside. And that's why the Ministry of Defence needs to be straining every sinew to make sure that everything that can possibly be done is being done. You've spoken this week of your bewilderment and horror at what's happening in Afghanistan. It's heartbreaking. And I've had similar conversations with former colleagues of mine who served in Afghanistan, who committed such a lot to the mission. And of course, we're all thinking about the families of those British men and women who served in our armed forces who didn't return. It's heartbreaking for them, given the effort that we invested in that country, to see where it's got to. This has not come as a massive surprise. But I still think even at this very late hour, the British government has an absolute responsibility to engage with partners with the international community to do everything that possibly can be done to try and stabilise the situation in Afghanistan. On reflecting on what happened in Afghanistan, you say we knew the flaws in our strategy and chose to do nothing about them. Why? Well, I think in terms of uh, the British government, there seemed to be what I've and others have described as a conspiracy of optimism. I lost count of the number of times senior people said that this would be the year that we would make that crucial breakthrough. This would be the year that the tide would turn, but it never did. And I think when we look back at the conduct of the campaign, there are many things that could and should have been uh, done differently. And we do need to look at that. But right now, there is an urgent and pressing need to support the government of Afghanistan and, and do everything that we possibly can to make sure that their best place to hold the line and to beat back the Taliban advance. As a man who has been in the military and is now in politics, do you see this failure as a military one or a political one? It's definitely a political failure. This is what strategic political failure looks like. The complete inability to properly identify the aims of the campaign. No one person shoulders complete responsibility, of course, but there is a collective failure, both of the British, the US government and other NATO partners and allies to actually get Afghanistan to a place where it could defend itself. And collectively, the international community has to take responsibility for that and learn from it. When you were serving in Afghanistan, did you ever imagine this is how it would end? Well, I did three separate tours in Afghanistan. I always hoped that this is not how it would end. But deep down, I think I did fear that we might find ourselves in the situation that we currently are in. 
with Afghanistan really on a knife edge. The Taliban are in, in, in ascendancy, and there is a very real risk that Lashkar-Gar, Herat, Kandahar, and other areas will fall under their control. That's deeply concerning and, and heartbreaking, given the effort and the investment that we put in over 20 or more years. And given the current situation, you and perhaps many of your former comrades may be asking yourselves, was it worth it? Was it? It's impossible to conclude at this moment that it was worth it. And that's such a sad conclusion to have to draw. But I don't think that you could come up with any other conclusion, really, given everything that we've committed to it. This is not how we wanted Afghanistan to be. And there is a very real risk that the Taliban won't be able to take control. And all of that effort and all of that investment has been squandered. And that is absolutely heartbreaking for us all. But as I say, particularly for those families who lost loved ones while serving there. Dan Jarvis speaking to me earlier. Well, let's pick this up with our guests. Larissa Brown is defence editor at The Times and professor of defence studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, it's impossible to conclude that it was worth it. Dan Jarvis there sounding pretty downbeat. Yes, and he's right too. I mean, he says this is what political failure looks like. And it's not just Britain's failure. It's a collective failure of the Western powers. And, you know, in Britain's case, this was Britain's fourth Afghan war since in the last 200 years. The first three wars, Britain lost lots of battles, which people remember, but they won the wars. In this case, in Britain's fourth Afghan war, we never lost a battle, but we've lost the strategic uh, advantage. So we've essentially lost in Afghanistan, having never been defeated on the battlefield. Uh, Larissa, David Petraeus, a former US commander in Afghanistan, says we've abandoned our duty to protect democracy and that the rest of the world will see we're not standing up for the values we promote around the world. Yes, well, David Petraeus has also made comments about the interpreters that we're leaving behind because he believes that we should be, you know, this is part of our duty to allow these people to countries such as the US and the UK. And so he supported a campaign over several years to bring those people here. And of course, that's ever more important now that we're seeing the Taliban take over the swathes of territory. There is a real sense of urgency on the ground now and it's getting ever more dangerous. Michael Clark, one response this week has been that if Lashkar were to fall, it's symbolic rather than strategically significant. If, if that is the case, why did we invest so much time, money and effort, including all those lives lost in Helmand? And Lashkar is the provincial capital of Helmand. So if Lashkar falls, then effectively Helmand has gone to the Taliban. Why did we go to Helmand? Well, There was a deal between us and the Canadians uh, and the Dutch, and the Canadians were very clear they wanted to go to Kandahar to do an important job in Kandahar, which arguably the British should have been doing. And so we went to Helmand. uh, And a lot of people said when that decision was made, where's Helmand? What what are we doing there? And the the, the reality was always that Helmand is a very important part of Afghanistan, but we could easily lose the war in Helmand. You could never win it from there. And so Britain always had a very difficult province to look after. And the Taliban... Because of the history of the first three Afghan wars, the Taliban targeted the British in Helmand, partly for emotional and historic reasons, because the Battle of Maiwand and so on, that's where some of the biggest battlefield defeats for the British occurred in the 19th century. Well, the Chief of Defence Staff, General Sinek Carter, was asked this week about the need for a formal inquiry into what went wrong in Afghanistan. There'll be a lot of big lessons, I think, that people can learn from that. Um, now, whether it needs a 
massive inquiry or not, I don't know. But I think that, um, you know, there's no question that we need to have a proper process of understanding those lessons and making sure that in the future we apply them effectively. Uh, Larissa Brown, when a military operation lasts two decades, costs billions, involves a loss of hundreds of British lives and ends like this, surely you have to investigate that. Yes, you only have to speak to people inside the Ministry of Defence and, and, and senior sources that have told me that they're obviously feeling extremely frustrated that we're at this stage. And they were never happy in the first place at this idea that we would be pulling out at this point because there's obviously still much more to be done. And they were concerned that we would end up in a situation where the Taliban would overrun provincial capitals. Clearly, people need to look at what, what exactly went wrong. Did we leave at the right time? Should we have put more resources in? And what will, what will we do in the future? Because, of course, there's a lot of concern that as a vacuum opens up in Afghanistan, more extremists and terrorists could flood to the region. It could be extremely, extremely dangerous over the next couple of years. This is Zitrap. Now, Iran's being warned it's made a big mistake after it was accused of being behind an attack on an oil tanker off Amman. Two people died in the attack on an Israeli-owned vessel, one of them a British security guard, reportedly a Fijian-born military veteran. The chief of the defence staff has warned international action is needed to deter a repeat of the attack, and the Prime Minister is telling Iran to face up to its actions. This was clearly uh, an unacceptable and outrageous attack on uh, commercial uh, shipping. Uh, it is absolutely uh, vital that Iran and every other country respects the freedoms of navigation around the world and uh, the UK uh, will continue to insist on that. The US and Israel also say they're convinced Iran was behind the attack, an allegation dismissed in Tehran as baseless. Well, Larissa Brown and Michael Clark are still with me. Um, Michael Clark, the death of a British national in this attack makes it a much more serious affair for the UK. Uh, yes, it draws us into it. I'm pretty sure that the death of a British national was uh, an accident as far as the Iranians are concerned, because almost certainly they were attacking this tanker, the the, the MT uh, Mercer Street, um, because it was uh, it's part of this Israeli Iran uh, tanker shipping war that's going on. The Israelis are attacking Iranian tankers delivering oil to the Assad regime in Syria. And the Republican Guard in Iran, who are not really in, under the control of, of the whole of the government of, of uh, Tehran, I think are trying to hit back. In, so in this case, it was hitting back against a, a Liberian-flagged, Japanese-owned tanker working for Israel. And it so happened that there were British guards on board. And Larissa, this is not the first such attack on Israeli-linked shipping. Uh, but Western anger seems seems more concentrated this time. The fact that people have now been killed just really ups the ante. And of course, the UK needs to be seen to, to be hitting back in some way. And, and we've also heard from Carter, who said that basically the UK should be calling uh, Iran out for these acts um, and needs to go further in, in, in sort of providing a deterrent. And it's not clear exactly what that deterrent could be. Well, Tobias Elwood, who chairs the Commons Defence Select Committee, says Britain must respond. But first, the West must prove beyond doubt Iran was behind the attack. The executive in any country can't simply attack another country and we take their word for it. There has to be proof. Key relevant senior parliamentarians should be invited in, perhaps myself as chair of the Defence Select Committee, Tom Tugendhat, chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and shown this evidence, shared with us, so we can give the assurance that we are satisfied that it is absolutely appropriate that there should be some form of kinetic response. Michael Clark, how likely is the kinetic response Tobias Elwood is talking about? 
extremely unlikely, I think. I mean, Britain will talk tough on this and do absolutely nothing in a, in a physical sense. I mean, what will happen is that this event goes onto the charge sheet uh, against Iran. And when the Iranians turn to the West, as they will do fairly soon, because they've got to get sanctions lifted for all sorts of economic reasons, we will show them the charge sheet and we'll say, why should we be helping you to lift sanctions when you keep doing this sort of thing, when your Republican Guard core is out of control? And so that's what will happen. It, it you know, They become serial offenders and the charge sheet, there's got a lot of previous and the charge sheet just gets longer and longer. So we add this to the charge sheet. That's really what will happen. Well, this is all played out as Abraham Rahisi prepares to be sworn in as Iran's new president. Um, Larissa, we know he's a hardliner. Could this be a deliberate move to present a tougher attitude towards the West? Well, yes, I think there's a lot of concern, of course, especially in the Ministry of Defence, actually. We've um, heard from Ben Wallace recently speaking about Iran in light of his appointment, saying that he's really concerned about what the future will hold. It's concerning that that could only get worse. Uh, Michael, the US has warned it won't wait forever for progress and talks on the stalled nuclear deal. Certainly any hope of agreement before Raisi took office has disappeared, do you think? Yes, there was some hope that, that they might be able to arrive at something very quickly, but that was always a fairly forlorn hope. The fact is the, the, the United States really does need a nuclear deal with Iran, but it doesn't need it absolutely immediately. But the Iranians do need some sort of lifting of sanctions very, very soon. And Raisi, uh, as the new president, has got to show that he can do something about the dreadful economic state they're in. I mean, there are there are riots in the in the streets now in some cities over water and electricity shortages. There's a big spike in food prices. There's a, a drought. The social fabric of Iran is under severe strain. And unless Raisi can show that he can do, he can do something to relieve it, and most of that means he's got to do something about sanctions, then he'll be in big trouble. In September last year, the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth showed up on track. Tracking maps sailing into the Irish Sea at the head of a six-strong group of ships from the British, Dutch and Belgian navies. The only thing is, it never happened. Instead, the carrier had fallen victim to a growing problem. Ships having their positions or even entire voyages faked. But who's doing it and why? Paul Osborne spoke to Bjorn Bergman from the environmental technology group SkyTruth and Global Fishing Watch. He was researching abuse of the tracking system, AIS, to conceal illegal fishing when he discovered military ships have been targeted as well. Nine Swedish naval vessels appeared as if they were out on maneuvers, but um, you know several witnesses in port and the Swedish Navy denied that these were the uh, real locations. So I was able to pull up the AIS data for those nine ships and see some... Um, some very clear patterns for the uh, the nine Swedish naval vessels that we knew um, had false locations. We should just say for those who don't know that AIS is the system on commercial shipping that is designed to prevent collisions. Yes, that's right. Typically, naval vessels may only use it intermittently, so in congested areas or um, when they're going in and out of port. So you found that locations were being faked, in particular these Swedish military vessels, but then discovered that there were actually a lot more military vessels that have been targeted. It was pretty surprising. Dozens of NATO warships coming up with the same pattern. We didn't know um, precisely what it meant. You know, you could see a clear location where the ship should be, but then on imagery, nothing was present. You would imagine it would be rather difficult to fake the location of a ship. Yeah. And we're not uh, entirely sure how this is uh, is being done. 
But somehow these, these false positions have gotten into databases. You mentioned the overwhelming majority of the military ships whose locations have been faked are either those of NATO members or countries that are allied with NATO. So when you then look to see who might be doing it, there are obvious suspects. And of course, it's also interesting to see, um, you know, where these false tracks are being placed. There is a, um, a clear emphasis on showing uh, vessel activity within Russian territorial waters. That's the, uh, the 12 nautical mile limit. And also within um, the territorial waters around uh, Russian occupied Crimea. One of the ships whose location was faked was the aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth. Now, the Ministry of Defense has had no operational impact, but we do know that another Royal Navy ship, HMS Defender, was targeted in circumstances in the waters around Crimea that could have had more serious consequences. This falsification could be used to uh, create a false narrative about where these ships are operating or um, even potentially justify some sort of uh, military action based on false information. You were able to uncover quite a lot of complex data from these trails. Within that, is there anything that points to a potential source? All we can really see is that the um, AIS is being simulated in in the same way across these, these different instances, probably by the same person or people. This must have caused some alarm for the militaries whose locations are being falsified. We did share the, uh, the results as soon as we started finding these tracks, uh, just informally with contacts at the, um, the Royal Navy and also the, uh, the U.S. Navy. And our understanding is uh, that they had been aware and were, um, were finishing up their own investigation into this. Bjorn Bergman from Sky Truth and Global Fishing Watch talking to Paul Osborne. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks to Larissa Brown, Professor Michael Clark, and all this week's guests. You can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. You can catch up with our entire archive at bfbs.com slash SITREP. And while there, you can find links to sign up to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Until next time, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.